This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. Reality shows have become very popular in the last decade. It seems that millions of people enjoy watching talented chefs create tasty dishes right in front of our eyes, or watch the -the behind-the-scenes drama of a celebrity chef and his team serving culinary delights in one city or another's hottest restaurants. For whatever reason, we can't get enough of shows like Iron Chef, The Great British Bake Off, and Hell's Kitchen. But what happens when good chefs go bad? In this series, Chopped, I'll answer that question as I bring you cases of some talented and successful restaurateurs who turned away from the stove and toward a life of crime. In this first episode, I'll tell you about a successful restaurant owner with a beautiful wife who was respected in his community. But the Vien's home would hold many dark secrets, drug dealing, alcohol abuse, and domestic violence. One October night in 2009, things would boil over, and Don Viennes would never be seen again. When her husband David finally revealed what happened to her, it would shock even the most experienced homicide detectives. This is Chapter 1 of Chopped, the case of Don and David Viennes. David and Don Viennes had been married for almost a dozen years when they moved to Lomita, in Southern California in 2008 and opened a restaurant they would call Time Contemporary Cafe. Lomita was a small suburb located in Los Angeles County, almost 30 miles south of LA and just northwest of Long Beach. Their new restaurant was located on Narbonne Avenue, adjacent to other small businesses that served the community of 20,000, including a salon, a dentist office, and an auto repair shop. The small cafe advertised itself as a local bistro that used fresh, locally sourced ingredients for its eclectic menu of burgers, sandwiches, salads, pastas, and even tacos. The couple worked side-by-side to open the restaurant, with Don serving as overall manager and hostess and David as the chef, spending long hours in the kitchen with a small crew. The cafe employed just two servers to wait on tables. Still, it was doing well, and before long, the cafe was getting good reviews and business was brisk, with most diners raving about David's dishes. Everyone loved Dawn, who was outgoing, energetic, and always cheerful as she greeted their customers. David Viennes, originally from Vermont, was 10 years Dawn's senior. When they met in the early 1990s, David was going through a divorce. He was a cook and Dawn a server at the restaurant where they met. Don began dating the divorced dad of three, and they married in 1997. The couple moved around, working at various restaurants before landing in Anna Maria Island, Florida, where they opened a restaurant together, the Beach City Market and Grill. It became a family affair when they made Don's brother David Papin the restaurant's manager. Later, when the couple landed in California, they fit right into their new Southern California home. Don Viennes, with her sun-kissed skin, auburn hair, and trim figure, at 39 years old, looked years younger, and you would be forgiven if you pegged her as a typical California surfer girl. 
She had a perpetual smile on her face and was a natural beauty. Her husband David, at age 48, still had a boyishly handsome face and looked younger than his age as well, as he often covered his thinning hair with a baseball cap. He worked long hours at the restaurant, as did Don, to make their business a success. By most people's assessment, Don and David were a happy, successful couple living a great life in Southern California. But all was not as it appeared. There were cracks in the marriage that grew wider due to drug and alcohol consumption and financial issues. There may have also been domestic violence. According to Don's friend Karen Patterson, Don had appeared more than once with suspicious bruises. In August of 2009, Karen saw marks on Don's neck and asked her what had happened. Don confided in her friend that her husband had grabbed her by the neck and choked her. Karen was concerned about her friend, but Don dismissed it as an argument that went too far. But a month later, Karen says, Don called her to report another big fight with David. This time, Don told her that David had been so angry she'd been scared enough to lock herself in the bathroom. Karen told her friend that she was calling the police and sending them over. But Don begged her not to report the incident. Reluctantly, Karen agreed to her friend's request. She would later come to regret this deeply. Another person was also hearing that not all was well between the couple. Joe Kakachi, who owned a motorcycle repair shop across from the Time Cafe, had become friendly with the Viennes. Over time, each one began to confide their troubles to him. David told him that Don had a drinking problem. Don told Joe that David was too controlling. Then in the fall of 2009, Don asked Joe to do her a favor. She said she'd been socking away some cash and wanted to stash it in his office. Joe said it was about $700 that Don asked him to hold, apparently to keep it a secret from her husband. It appeared as if Don may have been taking small amounts of money from tabs collected at the restaurant. Was this in an attempt to squirrel enough away to leave her husband? Or for some other reason? This is unknown. But it is known that David found out about it on October 18th. According to Todd Stagnito, who was installing some equipment in the kitchen after the restaurant closed that evening, David Viennes took a look at the day's receipts. As he flipped through them, he became angry. That bitch is stealing from me. Nobody steals from me. I'll kill that bitch, Viennes reportedly said to Stagnato, referring to his wife. Also, that same day, Don called Joe Kakachi and asked if she could have him hold some more money for her. He told her it was no problem. Don said she would drop off the money to Joe's shop on the following day, Monday, October 19th. She never arrived, and Joe, nor anyone else, ever saw Don Viennes again. When Joe Kakachi didn't hear from Don Viennes on the Monday in October, when she said she'd come by to drop off more cash, he didn't think too much about it at first. When a few days passed and he still hadn't heard anything, he walked over to the restaurant to check on her. She wasn't there, and another employee was working the hostess stand. Joe went to David Viennes to inquire about Don. Viennes told him that his wife had left him. Earlier, Viennes had told Joe about his problems at home saying that Don was an alcoholic and her drinking was out of control. Now he told him that he'd insisted Don go to rehab for alcohol abuse. According to Viennes, Don had become angry and left. He hadn't heard from her since, he told Joe. 
This was immediately suspicious to Joe. He knew Don and David well, and he didn't believe David's story. He'd also seen Don's car parked near the restaurant that weekend. Bien's had an answer for this as well. She'd been so angry, he told Joe, that she'd just grabbed her purse and left on foot. Well, that didn't make any sense, Joe thought, but it was none of his business. Even so, he decided to keep an eye out for anything that might explain Don's sudden absence. His shop was just across the parking lot from the cafe, so it would be easy to keep an eye on Viennes. Viennes also told restaurant employees the same story. Don had left him, and he needed to find someone to help him run the restaurant in her absence. Soon afterward, he called his youngest daughter Jacqueline, or Jackie, and asked her to come stay with him and help out. Jackie was living in South Carolina when she got the call from her dad. She was just 19 at the time and was more than happy to travel to sunny California to give her father a hand. Jackie thought her dad was a great guy, and she was excited to spend more time with him. She was, however, sad about the problems he and Don were apparently having. Don had been part of Jackie's and her siblings' lives for 17 years, and she loved Don, too. But she would later also admit that she had been aware of Don's drinking. There was a time, Jackie recalled, when she'd visited her dad in Florida, and Don came into the restaurant in the morning and chugged down a beer. Jackie would also say that Don hid her drinking from her husband. Jackie would believe her father when he said that they'd argued about Don's excessive use of alcohol and her stepmother had left him. Joe Kakachi was still keeping an eye on things at the Time Cafe, and there were a couple of other things that aroused his suspicion. The first was, just two weeks after telling him that Don had left him, Kakachi witnessed David Viennes holding hands with one of his very young waitresses. 22-year-old Kathy Galvin had been a server at the restaurant for a short time before Don disappeared. After she began dating David Viennes, he promoted her to hostess, Don's former position. Then Kakachi witnessed something else that made his hair stand on end. One morning before the cafe opened, he saw David Viennes' truck drive into the empty parking lot and back up to the dumpsters. Jackie Viennes and Kathy Galvin got out of the truck and, opening some boxes in the back, began dumping clothing into the bins. Joe recognized the clothes as belonging to Don Viennes. Ever since 39-year-old Don Viennes went missing in October, her family and friends had been trying to get answers. No one had heard from her, and they weren't buying the story her husband David told about her leaving on foot one night after an argument. Her friend Karen Patterson was particularly alarmed, as she'd learned not long before, that David had become physically violent towards Dawn. Karen tried to have police look into her friend's disappearance, but so far they had not taken the report that seriously. Karen had also contacted Dawn's family to inform them of her absence. They also had not heard from her. Dana Papen, Dawn's sister, filed a missing persons report. She didn't believe David's story either. If Dawn had left him, she asked, why hadn't he told her family? David Papen, Dawn's younger brother who had worked alongside them in the Florida restaurant, knew the couple well. He was close to his brother-in-law and said he was a talented chef, but he described his sister's marriage to David as a toxic relationship. David had also indulged in drugs and alcohol, he said, and when they both began abusing these substances, their relationship became rocky. David was used to being the one in control of the relationship, 
He was the older man when he met Dawn and set about to take care of her. He continued in that role even as Dawn matured and wanted to gain more independence as her own person. David didn't take the idea that he was losing control in the relationship well. Dawn, as a result, became more and more unhappy and drowned her feelings in drugs and alcohol. All of this led Dawn's family and friends to believe that something terrible had happened to her, but they were left without answers, and it seemed no one would take their concerns seriously. Months passed with no word from Dawn. Meanwhile, David continued to run the restaurant and had already moved on to a new girlfriend. Weeks after arriving to help her dad at his restaurant, Jackie approached him to ask when Dawn would be coming back. He said he hadn't heard from her and didn't know. Now Jackie pressed him for information. What did he mean he hadn't spoken to her? Where was she? What was going on? Jackie said her questions bothered her father a lot. He'd been drinking and became quite drunk as she continued to question him. He then began to cry and said he was, quote, so sorry, but it was an accident, end quote. Don was dead, he told his daughter. According to his account, Don had come home one evening drunk and high on cocaine. He had just worked 90 hours that week in the restaurant and was exhausted. She started yelling at him, Vienne said, and, quote, became out of control. She wanted to do more cocaine, and to try and stop her and in order to get some sleep, he taped her hands and legs together and also placed tape over her mouth. He'd fallen asleep and the next morning had found her dead. Jackie was horrified and at first couldn't believe what she was hearing. If this was true, she asked, where was Dawn's body? Her father would only say that her body, quote, would never be found. David then began to sob and beg his daughter not to tell anyone what he'd confessed. She finally promised to keep his confession a secret. But David Viennes would ask still more of his daughter. He had Dawn's cell phone and asked her to help him send text messages from it to Dawn's friends and family, so they'd believe she was still alive. Jackie did not want to help her father cover up her stepmother's death, but she also didn't want to be the cause of her father going to prison. Her father told her he'd loved Dawn, and she knew this to be true. He told Jackie he would have never hurt her intentionally, and if she didn't help him, his life would be over too. Jackie reluctantly agreed to his request, sending two messages to Dawn's friends. One saying she was okay and was back in Florida, quote, starting her life over. She signed it with her nickname, Pixie. But Dawn's friends immediately knew the message had not been written by her. Pixie had been misspelled. Instead of reading P-I-X-I-E, it read P-I-X-Y. They shared this information with the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department. Dawn's family continued to urge the police to investigate her disappearance. They also spoke to the media, hoping to get word out to the public. On December 24th, three months after Dawn was last seen, Larry Altman, a reporter for the Daily Breeze, filed a story about the missing woman. For his article, Altman spoke with David Viennes, who told him that his wife had stormed out after a fight, carrying only her purse. Who goes anywhere in Los Angeles on foot, he thought, 
it didn't add up. He also noted David Vienz's use of the past tense when he spoke about his wife. I loved her and hope she's safe, Vienz told Altman. Altman's curiosity was piqued enough to do some digging into David Vienz's past. He found that Vienz had quite a checkered history, including a record for drug-related charges dating back to the early 1990s. These were not just charges for minor drug possession, but arrests for cocaine and marijuana distribution. In 1993, Vienz was convicted in the state of Vermont for distribution of cocaine. He was looking at several years in prison, but was given a deal to turn informant for federal agents who were seeking to break up a larger drug operation. He cooperated and was sentenced to just one year in prison. But it appeared as if Vienz was not scared straight by his former conviction, because a decade later, he was once again convicted on federal drug-related charges. This time, he was only given a four-month sentence, but rather than serve his time, David Viennes fled to Mexico. This may have been around the same time he promoted Don's brother to manage his Florida restaurant. Two years later, Viennes surrendered to federal agents, turning himself in for the former charges he'd skipped out on. In 2005, he was convicted in Florida on the federal marijuana distribution charges. The feds accused David Vienne of purchasing large quantities of marijuana and supplying it to smaller dealers in the Tampa Bay area. Soon after Vienne's was released, he and Don relocated from Florida to California. With this information, it's clear to see that David Vienne's wasn't just the squeaky clean upstanding business owner that he portrayed himself to be. It also brings into focus the irony of David Vienne's pointing a finger at his wife's drinking problem as the source of their marital strife when he'd spent his entire adult life as a drug dealer and convicted criminal. The Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department began to take a closer look at David Viennes. The investigation, headed by Sergeant Rich Garcia, was officially transferred from missing persons to homicide in February 2011. A wiretap was placed on Viennes' phone, and Garcia requested that Viennes' daughter Jackie, who'd since returned from North Carolina, come in for an interview. Garcia also contacted journalist Larry Altman, who'd done the story about Don's disappearance two months earlier. The investigator gave a scoop to Altman, cluing him in about blood that had been found during their search of the Viennes' home. The blood had been found in the master bedroom and one other location in the home. Garcia, however, did not tell Altman that the blood was too old and degraded to be any help in the investigation. What Garcia wanted was the reporter to write the story in order to put pressure on Viennes, perhaps causing him to react and make a mistake the investigators could use to their advantage. On February 21st, Jackie Viennes was interviewed by homicide investigators. She admitted what her father had confessed to her, that Don was dead and that it had been an accident. Her father had not revealed the location of Don's body, but had only said that, quote, it would never be found, end quote. Without a body, investigators knew it would be a challenge to charge him with murder, based only on a drunken confession. Two days later, on February 23rd, the follow-up story Altman wrote for the Daily Breeze concerning Don Vien's disappearance was printed on the newspaper's front page. David Vienz realized that he was being investigated and that police suspected him in Don's disappearance. Later that day, he also received a call from his daughter, telling him that she'd been brought in for questioning by the detectives. Jackie told him that she'd had no choice but to tell them about the confession. 
David Viennes now panicked. Without waiting for police to come knocking on his door, he ran to the apartment he now shared with his girlfriend, Kathy Galvin, in Torrance. He had a copy of the newspaper in his hand stating that the police now considered Don's disappearance a homicide investigation. He sobbed while telling Galvin, I'm really, really sorry. She's not coming back. It was an accident. Galvin tried to calm him down, but he ran to his car, a 2003 Toyota 4Runner, and started to drive off. Galvin was able to jump into the passenger seat before he raced out of the parking lot. She continued trying to calm Viennes down, who was crying a lot, according to Galvin, as he sped toward the coast. Viennes pulled into the parking lot at the Point Vicente Lighthouse and Rancho Palos Verdes. It overlooks cliffs that drop off into the Pacific Ocean from 80 to 130 feet high. Galvin pleaded with her boyfriend to stop as he exited the car, pulling on his clothing to hold him back. Vien said, I'm sorry, no one's going to believe me, before climbing over a guardrail. A sheriff's deputy had spotted the silver forerunner exceeding speeds of over 80 miles per hour and followed him to the lighthouse. There he witnessed a man heading towards the cliff's edge with a woman attempting to hold on to him, yelling, Stop! The deputy saw the man step over the guardrail. He called out to him to come back so they could talk. Viennes responded, You know who I am, and called the deputy a liar after he told him he didn't and just wanted to help him. The deputy saw Viennes say something to the woman and kiss her before pushing her away with both hands. He then took a few steps and jumped from the cliff feet first. The deputy grabbed the hysterical Galvin and pulled her away from the railing. After David Viennes realized that police were closing in on him for the murder of his wife Dawn, he decided to end his life before he could be charged with homicide, throwing himself off an 80-foot cliff in front of his 22-year-old girlfriend, Kathy Galvin, and an L.A. County Sheriff's deputy. Miraculously, David Viennes survived the fall. He had jumped feet first, ending up with catastrophic injuries, shattering his ankles, legs, and breaking his hip, but was alive. Had he jumped off head first, doctors said, he would have surely perished. He was helicoptered to the hospital and rushed into surgery. When Don's family heard about her husband's suicide attempt, they said it confirmed what they already suspected, that he had killed her. No one on the planet is going to take their life for something they didn't do, Don's brother David Pepin said. Just a few days after his nearly fatal leap, David Viennes spoke from his hospital bed to Sergeant Garcia and confessed his involvement in his wife's death. When Garcia asked him how it happened, Viennes responded, For some reason, I just got violent. He admitted that it had to do with money he'd found missing from the restaurant. He said Don had come home very late that night after partying. She wanted to do more drugs and started screaming at him. He said he'd taped her hands and feet together with clear packing tape, claiming he'd done this twice before when she'd gotten, quote, out of control. This time, however, he also placed a piece of tape over her mouth. Viennes claimed that he'd then gone to sleep. When he woke in the morning, he found his wife dead. He panicked because he thought no one would believe him when he said it was an accident. When the homicide investigator asked him where Don's body was, Viennes led him to believe it could be found on the restaurant's property. In the months since Don was last seen, Viennes had begun to remodel the restaurant, including pouring new concrete for an outdoor patio. Investigators had the property thoroughly searched. 
tearing up floors and breaking up concrete to dig for a body. Nothing was found. On March 1, 2011, David Viennes was charged with Dawn's murder, even though her body had still not been recovered. Then, three weeks after his first confession, Viennes sent word to investigators that he wanted to talk with them again, and this time, he was prepared to tell them how he had disposed of the body. Like his first confession, David Viennes' second interview with police was also audio-taped. He was still in the hospital recovering from his injuries, and his speech appears to be somewhat slowed, perhaps as a result of the pain medication he was on. But Sergeant Garcia would describe Viennes as completely lucid during the interview. The story Viennes told Sergeant Garcia was like none he'd ever heard before and horrifying in its details. Viennes said after he discovered his wife's, quote, cold and hard body in the morning, he panicked and decided he needed to make it appear as if she'd left him. In order to remove any trace of her, Yen said he transported her body to the restaurant, where he placed the body of his 105-pound wife in a 55-gallon pot. He said he'd positioned her face down because, quote, he did not want to see her face. He filled the large pot with water, making sure the body stayed submerged by placing weights on top of it. He then told Garcia he cooked her body for four days. At the end of each day, he let the remains cool and then strained what he could out of the pot to dispose of. The smaller portions of what was left, Yen said, he'd hidden in the kitchen's grease pit. Larger portions were double-bagged and put in the cafe's dumpster. He claimed the skull was stashed in his mother's attic in Torrance. Vien's story, while gruesome, also seemed somewhat implausible to some. Sergeant Garcia, however, believed Vien's. You don't make that story up, Garcia later said, adding, People do what they know how to do. He's a cook. He knows how to cook. At a time of panic, you're going to always draw back to the one thing you know. By the time David Vienz's trial began in September of 2012, he'd recanted his confession, saying it was ludicrous to believe he'd cooked his wife to get rid of her body. Asked to explain the details he'd provided to investigators, he said he'd been hallucinating due to the potent painkillers he'd been on while in the hospital. I was confused, Vienz said, because of these dreams and stuff I've had. Vienz entered the court each day in a wheelchair, still unable to walk on his own. Vien's defense would point to the fact that he had also confessed to hiding her skull at his mother's house, but the house had been searched and it was not found. Vien's attorney would stick to the first confession, that Dawn's death was an accident, and he'd panicked and disposed of her body by placing it in the dumpster. They were arguing that Vien's should only be charged with manslaughter. But the prosecution's theory of the case was one of an angry man who was motivated to kill his wife after accusing her of stealing from him a charge he had made to Kathy Galvin and others. The prosecutors believe Viennes should be convicted of first-degree murder. While the defense said it was ridiculous to think that Viennes could have cooked a body for several days in the restaurant without employees or customers noticing, the prosecution had their theory of how it was possible. 
They told the jury it was their contention that Viennes kept the pot boiling throughout the night and before the restaurant opened in the morning, transferred it via a wheeled cart into a locked shed located on the property to hide it during the business day. They also rejected the defense's claim that Viennes could not have anticipated his wife would die from having her limbs and mouth taped up because he'd, quote, done it twice before and she hadn't suffered any ill effects. It was David Viennes' claim that Dawn had become out of control on two previous occasions when she was high on drugs, and in order to calm her down, he'd taped her up. After she was calm, he removed the tape, and they went to dinner, Viennes claimed. Both Viennes' daughter Jackie and Kathy Galvin, who was no longer in a relationship with the defendant, testified in the murder trial. Jackie recounted how she'd helped her father fake text messages from Dawn's phone after he confessed that he'd accidentally killed her. She told the jury she'd given in to his pleas for help because she, quote, didn't want to see my dad in prison for the rest of his life, end quote. She felt obligated to help him, she told the court. Kathy Galvin said that until the day her boyfriend had confessed his involvement and leaped from the cliff, she'd believed what he'd told her, that his wife had left him. Asked in court why she had removed Don's missing posters from the restaurant, she said it was because she believed Don was not actually missing, but had left her marriage voluntarily. As to why she had helped dispose of Don's clothes in the dumpster, Galvin responded that she was jealous and said, quote, I thought he was going to take his wife back, so I threw out her stuff, end quote. She told jurors that she had been with Viennes every day working in the restaurant and then in a relationship with him, and he could not have cooked his wife. Although, she had insisted that she had not begun dating Viennes until after his wife went missing. If he disposed of the body immediately after the murder, then she would not have been around to know whether he had cooked it or not. Or did she just give herself away and admit that they had been romantically involved at the time Don was killed? Hmm. After an eight-day trial, jurors deliberated for just five and a half hours before finding David Viennes guilty, but decided to convict on second-degree murder. Speaking to reporters afterward, several jurors said they were convinced of Viennes' guilt after learning of his suicide attempt. Six months later, at his sentencing hearing, David Viennes represented himself. He went on a 40-minute rant, insisting that he never meant to hurt his wife, and it was crazy to think that he had cooked her body. I loved my wife, Viennes told the judge. I did not cook my wife. He said that the state's theory that he had killed his wife of 17 years for 200 or 300 missing dollars was ridiculous. He said he would never harm his wife, let alone for such a petty reason. He apologized to Don's siblings, saying they were like little brothers and sisters to him, but maintained that he had not meant to kill Don. Vien's statement was in large part an attempt to persuade the judge to grant him a new trial, one in which he would testify, as he had not spoken up in his own defense in his first trial. The judge denied the motion for a new trial and sentenced Viennes to 15 years in prison. At the conclusion of the trial, Dana Papin, Don's sister, said, There's no happy ending. Two families have suffered tremendously. This is a man I've known for 20 years who was like a father to me. According to Don's friend Karen Patterson, a week before her friend's disappearance, Don had told her that David loved her so much and she knew he would never hurt her. On the stand, Karen apologized for not calling 911 when Don told her that David had abused her. 
Maybe you go beyond your friend's trust and try to save lives, Karen said tearfully. She was also considering visiting David in prison, saying, He is still my friend, and I struggle with the lovely person who killed another lovely person. I would remind him of how much Dawn loved him. Four years after David Viennes was sent to prison, he gave an interview to Dateline in which he again gave an account of what happened the night his wife was killed. And again, he placed the blame for his actions on Dawn herself. Viennes started his account by saying he'd returned home after midnight and was exhausted after working 90 hours that week. Dawn wasn't home when he arrived, and he suspected she was out looking for cocaine. He said he'd decided to barricade the door to their bedroom because he needed to sleep and didn't want her to wake him when she finally got home. When Dawn arrived home around 3 a.m., Vienne said she began pounding on the bedroom door, demanding to be let in. She continued to pound on the door until she broke through. A bit hard to imagine that a 100-pound woman could break down a door, but okay, we'll go with it for now. She then jumped onto the sleeping man and started slapping his face. He doesn't really explain why she did this but just claimed that his wife was, quote, out of control. In response to this unprovoked attack, according to Viennes, he just kept repeating, leave me alone, I just want to sleep. He said the attack seemed to go on forever. She then left the bedroom and went downstairs to the living room. Viennes said he followed her there. Why? If he just wanted to be left alone to sleep. Curious. When he arrived in the living room, he saw a package of cocaine on the table, Vien said. Upset that she had brought the drugs home, I guess, he grabbed it and ran to the kitchen, where he said he poured the cocaine down the sink. Dawn then became enraged and began screaming about how he'd wasted her drugs. She came at him, and to stop her attack, he pinned her to the ground. He saw a roll of packing tape on the kitchen table and grabbed it, wrapping the tape around her arms and legs so she couldn't hit him. Because she kept screaming, he taped her mouth closed with the tape as well, Vien said. He left Dawn taped up in the living room and went to bed. He said in the morning when he woke up, he rolled over and found Dawn absent. Well, naturally, if he left her downstairs. He then remembered what had transpired the night before and ran to the living room to check on her. That's when he found her cold, stiff body, Vien said. She had vomited and suffocated because the tape was over her mouth. He said he never meant to kill his wife and, quote, just wanted to sleep to calm down the situation so I could deal with it in the morning, end quote. Now he panicked that no one would believe it was an accident and he'd be accused of murdering Dawn. He decided to make it look like she'd run off and left him. Later that day, he'd placed her body inside three garbage bags and disposed of it in the dumpster behind the cafe. He said the story about boiling Dawn's body only came about because he was hallucinating from the pain of his injuries and the powerful painkillers he was given. A couple of problems with his story are glaringly obvious, however. First of all, what was the explanation for Don coming into the room and attacking him? Vien said she'd gone out to get cocaine, which he then found in the living room, so wouldn't she have just come home to do the drugs? Why attack her husband first, then return to the living room for the drugs? And if he just wanted to sleep, why did he follow her downstairs? Secondly, who tries to calm down a situation after a fight with their partner 
by taping their limbs together and their mouth closed. That just seems completely far-fetched. He'd also expressed his anger to several people about Don's alleged theft of money from the restaurant. He later tried to claim it was only a couple hundred dollars, but we know she'd given at least $700 to her friend Joe to hold for her. Maybe she was putting aside tips she earned at the restaurant. Maybe she was taking small amounts like Vienne suspected. But either way, it appeared that Don may have been trying to get some money together, perhaps to leave her husband. And if Don was trying to leave the marriage, isn't this a plausible explanation for why David Viennes may have acted out violently against his wife, even to the point of killing her? Because there's no body left to tell the story, we can't know how Don Viennes actually died. I also still wonder about the story of the body disposal. While boiling someone to get rid of the evidence of a murder seems completely out of the realm of possibility, what Sergeant Garcia said has stayed with me. That people default to that which they are most familiar at times of great stress. David Viennes had been a cook for decades, which is why this may have been his first idea for a solution of how to get out of the mess he'd created. There's also the fact that his daughter Jackie testified at the trial that in the past, she'd heard her father joking about getting rid of a body in just this manner. What also struck me about his second confession were all the details David Viennes included. If he had been out of his mind on painkillers, I think his thoughts and words would have been more untethered to reality. Much like when we try to describe a dream we've had, like, well, there was this dream that I had that you were in, except it wasn't you, but like it was you. No, his account of what he did was too specific for me to believe it was a hallucination. Here's a quote from that confession. Quote, I grab her right by the hands, both hands, and I bring her out to the living room. I forced her onto the floor, and I wrap her hands up real quick. End quote. Although this is a bit graphic, it will help to illustrate how specifically he recalled and described disposing of the body. Viennes detailed how he allowed the remains to cool off after boiling them down each night, how it took four days to completely boil down the remains, and how he had double-bagged what was left, putting no more than eight to ten pounds into one bag so it wouldn't look too suspicious once placed in the dumpster. Finally, it was Viennes who asked to speak to the investigator, summoning him to his hospital room to audiotape his confession. It wasn't the other way around with investigators applying pressure on Viennes to tell them where Don's body was. Just like his confession to his daughter and his suicide attempt, I believe this indicates a guilty conscience and the need to unburden himself by admitting to the horrible things he did. The Time Cafe closed after David Viennes was charged with murder. Its Yelp page is still active online. You can see pictures and read reviews by diners. Some of the reviews were written when Don was still missing, and before anyone knew that the friendly chef who made their pasta primavera would be charged with her murder. The cafe has since been purchased by new owners and turned into a pizzeria. David Viennes will be eligible for parole in 2023. Don Viennes' body has never been found. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Let me know what you think of this case. Did David Viennes really cook a body to dispose of it? Or was that all a hallucination? You can discuss this case and any others I've detailed on the podcast with me and other listeners on the Once Upon a Crime Facebook fan page. I've included a link in the show notes. 
Also, if you'd like to listen to episodes of Once Upon a Crime free of ads, you can become a Patreon member. For as little as $2 a month, you can listen to ad-free episodes of Once Upon a Crime and get them before anyone else. You can also listen to all our episodes without ads if you're a Stitcher Premium member. For just $4.99 per month or $34.99 per year, you can get ad-free episodes of many of your favorite podcasts, including Once Upon a Crime, My Favorite Murder, True Crime Garage, and more. Go to stitcher.com slash premium or patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to find out more and sign up. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.